Uh, would you please turn with me to your study outlines there in your program? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, the over a thousand that join us online every Sunday from different places all across the country, even different places in the world sometime. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us for our study, as well as our friends in Arco, Idaho, uh, Baptist Community Church. We're so glad you're joining us, as well as Purpose Church, Kalispell. So glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. Uh, we're continuing our summer series uh, called The Journey, based on the book of Deuteronomy. And each Sunday, either, either, each Sunday, either Pastor Eric or I will preach a message from the upcoming three chapters. And then we're going to read together as a, as a church those three chapters, about 12 verses a day. And so at the end of the second page, you'll see the little guideline there for the verses that we will read each day. Now today is a little bit unusual. Uh, we're going to start in Deuteronomy. We're going to end in Deuteronomy. But we're going to spend a lot of time in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers in between. Now, Deuteronomy, as we saw a few weeks ago, uh, literally means second law. Uh, Deuteros in the Greek means second. Nomos in the Greek means law. And so it's a retelling of the law. So at the beginning of the 40 years in the wilderness, at the beginning of that time, uh, Moses from Mount Sinai gave the nation of Israel Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But then, now that it is about 40 years later, they're about to go into the promised land. A new generation has come along, and so he is retelling it a second time, Deuter Deuteronomy, a second law. He's telling them it a second time just before they go into the promised land. Now, the title of today's study is How to Stay Healthy on the Journey. But I want to just take a couple of minutes to explain how last week and this week are going to be connected uh, with each other. When you make the case for the Christian faith, like Sean McDowell did last Sunday, and by the way, that was just spectacular. If, you weren't able, if you're out of town, weren't able to be here, go online and catch the messages. It was just amazing. And so when you make the case for the Christian uh, faith, like Sean did last Sunday, it's kind of like a courtroom where you're presenting evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, no, now not evidence that leaves you with no doubt, and that's an important distinction. Uh, we will continue to struggle with doubt in the Christian life until we're in heaven and we see Jesus face to face. Then boom, no doubt at that point. But we'll continue to struggle with doubt. So we're not talking about evidence uh, for what we believe in um, that leaves you with no doubt. We're talking about evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And, um, and as Jarrett was just saying uh, up here, any of you, if you're here exploring the claims of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here, and I and just so honor you to, to be here and to kind of listen to the evidence, and, and that's such an awesome thing, and, and I'm so glad that you're uh, willing to kind of consider uh, the evidence with an open mind. But it will never leave you with no doubt, it'll just leave you with um, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, Jason Anderson uh, usually sits right in the second row here at the 830 service. Uh, for the last six months or so, he has been the district attorney for San Bernardino County. And uh, he is just killing it, I'm telling you. They just had a huge drug bust the other day. And I asked Jason if we could maybe, they could tithe what that drug bust was worth uh, to our church. And uh, he's, uh, he's going to consider that and see if maybe we'll get a cut of that. But anyway, Jason's just doing a, a great, great job. Just kidding on that, by the way. Uh, Jason's doing just a, a monster job, just doing a great job. And we had him up here because he's been a defense attorney and a prosecuting attorney and uh, for his whole life. He and his wife, uh, Starla, as well. He is now, like I said, district attorney for San Bernardino County. And he, and he called it that state of affairs that leaves you with an abiding conviction of the truth of a matter. 
Now, that's not original by Jason, as he's quick to, to point out. Uh, he's simply quoting from the official California jury instructions. So if you sat on a jury, you know that's what's in the official jury instructions. Uh, we, we call it beyond a reasonable doubt. That's kind of the common term. But the technical term is that state of affairs that leaves you with an abiding conviction of the truth of the matter. That is, the evidence that, that most fits this particular uh, set of facts, uh, what what particular interpretation or conclusion best fits, not perfectly fits, but best fits the facts and the evidence that you have in front of you. Now, last week, Sean McDowell, he was just fantastic as he gave evidence for, at the first service, uh, God being the designer behind the design of the universe. He gave evidence here at 945 for the resurrection of Jesus, historically. Uh, he gave evidence and philosophical discussion more at the 1111 service for the Christian worldview being the best explanation for the problem of evil in the world. Not a perfect explanation, but the best explanation. I love that line in Law and Order. Any of you watched Law and Order? Anybody there? And you know, they had this old uh, guy that was the uh, Fred Thompson. That was his name. He was actually a senator eventually uh, from Tennessee. Actually ran for president. I actually had a chance to meet with him with a small team that were kind of consider him launching him to, to run for president. And, uh, and he was the district attorney there on Law and Order. And he had the greatest line. Because if you ever watch Law and Order, the conclusions are often very unsatisfying. You, you just at the end, you're like, Really, that's the best our legal system can come up with. And uh, he walks out of one and he says, you know what? He says, we've got the worst legal system in all the world except for all the others. <laughs> worst one in the world except for all the others. That is, it, it may have its flaws, but it's better than any other. At least it does the best job of dealing uh, with reality. And that's the same way with the Christian explanation for the problem of evil in the world. It's not a perfect explanation, but it is the best worldview for dealing with what we actually have in the world. So when you get the evidence, when you give the evidence of what you believe, you help your friends, and if any of you here are watching online or you're listening later on by podcast, I hope it's helpful to you as you make a reasonable decision as to whether or not to follow Jesus. But for those of us that are already following Jesus, it gets us fired up. Let me ask you, any of you that were here last Sunday, how many of you were fired up after that? Man, I was fired up. I'm like, it, it makes us take our faith more seriously. I mean, after listening to that, I'm like, you know what? This is not a play. We're, we're not playing a game here. This is not a movie. This is not a game. This, this is not we're actors in a play of pretend. This is not fiction. This, this is real, and it's serious. There's this guy named Blaise Pascal who was a famous French mathematician, and he came up with this thing called Pascal's Wager, and he was also a committed follower of Christ. And so he said, even if the evidence is just somewhat there, and he believed the evidence for following Christ was overwhelming, but he said, even if it's just partially there, it's still worth following because of Pascal's wager. You're, you're betting your life, you're betting your eternity on it. And he says, because the consequences are so much greater if you're wrong than if you're right. Uh, let me put it this way. If you're a follower of Christ and we end up being wrong, we just turn into dirt when life is over. It's not that bad, as Pastor Lisa likes to say. Following Christ makes you better, makes your life better, and you, and you better at life. I think that's the way you put it, Lisa. Life is better and better at life. And so I find that to be true. Now, even if you were in a country where you're severely persecuted for being a Christian, even then, life is over in a moment. Blink of an eye, boom, 
it's over with. No big deal if we're wrong. Now, if you reject Christ and you're wrong, huge consequences, eternal consequences, the difference between heaven and hell. And so Pascal would say, if you find any evidence whatsoever that it might be real, you best follow it because of Pascal's wager. And yet I would maintain, as Sean McDowell did last Sunday, that there is overwhelming evidence. You don't, even if it's just a little evidence, you should still follow it, but there is overwhelming evidence for it. Now, he gave us so much evidence last Sunday. It was just tremendous. Didn't need any more. But I'm just going to do a little pathetic attempt to add a little bit more evidence to what he shared last Sunday, that the Bible is real, and it's going to come from a very unusual place. Deuteronomy 7, verse 12. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. Verse 15. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. And, and so he says here that there are uh, certain diseases that he will protect you from if you follow after him. Now, we believe in our church for praying for those that get sick that God will heal them. And as a matter of fact, uh, Pastor Lisa will remind you of this at the end of the service, that our prayer room is right over here. And we've got a prayer team. And in James chapter 5, it says to anoint with oil and pray for a person who's sick. And if it's within God's plan, within his will, he will heal that person. And you're welcome every Sunday to go to the prayer room or here to the front to receive a prayer uh, for healing. But the Bible also talks about preventative health care. That is keeping people from getting sick. As a matter of fact, I read a while back in Time Magazine, a secular source, Time Magazine, uh, cited some research that attending church services adds two to three years to your life. Just attending church services adds two to three years. This is not Christianity Today. This is not Pastor Glenn. This is Time Magazine. So just by sitting here this morning, you will not only get this hour back, you'll get an additional four hours as well. This is a five-for-one deal. When I go long in my sermon, you ought to thank me for doing that. You ought, you ought to be grateful. It may feel like you're slowly dying, but it's actually you're adding uh, years uh, to, your, to your life. Uh, I had a friend. You guys know I talk about him all the time. Dr. Luke Cutherell, he's one of my heroes in my life. Uh, we ran track together at Wheaton College. And he's the chief administrator and the chief surgeon all of his life, the last 30 or 40 years, at the Bach Christian Hospital in Abbottabad, Pakistan, about 30 miles north of Islamabad. Uh, Abbottabad, as I've mentioned before, is where Osama bin Laden was killed. And they actually, from his hospital, if you were on the night shift, you could actually hear the explosions when the Navy SEALs uh, came in. And here, just a, what a small world among Christians uh, Priscilla Constantine, I come here to our church, and she uh, trained the lab technicians in the laboratory where Dr. Luke is, is the chief surgeon, and so they were friends there, and so I went out a couple of times um, uh, during those years that they were there together to see Priscilla, to see her work, and also to hang out with my, with my friend Luke. And on this one particular day, I followed him around on his hospital rounds in the day. So at the beginning of the day, we went over and saw Priscilla, and she was training the lab technicians. And then we took a couple of hours to, I followed him around on his hospital rounds. But then we spent the rest of the day doing latrine inspections about, at the surrounding villages outside of Abbottabad. 
And I'm like, oh, here this guy has his master's in public health from the University of Michigan. He has his MD, has his uh, medical degree, uh, as well as another master's in in public health. Uh, This guy's highly educated. He's spending his days doing latrine inspections. And he said to me, Glenn, I would rather keep them from getting sick so they never come to my hospital rather than to show up at the hospital and now we got to figure out how to heal them from the disease that they already have. Uh, Dr. Dan Fountain, I got to know him. Uh, Again, one of the missionaries that our church here supported and the church I pastored back in Homer, New York. Uh, Dan Fountain was the son of one of the previous pastors of Homer Baptist Church where I pastored before I came here. Uh, He was famous in this nation as one of the first doctors worldwide globally in the fight against uh, AIDS and also against Ebola. And in Africa, he was a complete legend. There were actually, this is literally true, some Africans actually believed he was such a great man that he turned into a hippopotamus at night. So at night, he would hang out and swim in the rivers as a hippopotamus, and during the day, he'd be Dr. Dan Fountain. And he told me that he used the Bible, literally used the Bible for preventative health care in the Congo. Um, missionaries we support just now when you put something in the offering plate. Part of that went uh, for the work of Dr. Bill and, and Ann Clemmer. And so part of your giving this morning went to support them. They continue Dan Fountain's. They were friends of his. And Dan Fountain's now passed away. He's with the Lord. And they continue his work there in the Congo and South Sudan. And Bill Clemmer was in the news just, uh, just a few weeks ago because of the Ebola crisis going on in Africa uh, right now. Now, why would these highly educated contemporary missionaries use a book from 3,400 years ago to fight disease? Well, because it's a supernatural book. Uh, First of all, it's supernatural because of uh, what is not in it. What is not in it, then we're going to look at what is in it. First, it's supernatural because of what is not in it. There is no ancient quackery within this book. Now, I don't want to offend my many Egyptian friends, and they are here at the 945 service from our Arabic fellowship, and my many uh, dear Egyptian friends here at Purpose Church. So let me start with this disclaimer. The Egyptians were the geniuses of 1400 B.C. in things like astronomy, in engineering, with the pyramids, and we also assume in, in medicine. They were the geniuses globally of that time period. But the medicine was terrible, uh, not just in Egypt, but all around the world. Medicine was terrible until about 100 years ago. Um, here in America, the 1700s, 3,100 years after the Egyptians, George Washington, the father of our country, was almost killed by Benjamin Rush, the father of American medicine, because when George Washington got sick, he drained two pints of blood out of him. Didn't give him blood, took two pints away from him. That's the father of American medicine, almost killed the father of our country. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the show Little House on the Prairie. Anybody? I guess it's on Nickelodeon now and that kind of thing. Have you ever watched a show, either Little House on the Prairie or a show like Little House on the Prairie, and thought to yourself, oh, wouldn't it be nice to live in that time period? Things were so simple back then. Things were so wholesome uh, 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 back then. No, you don't want to live there. There are many reasons. And one of the main reasons is I love American medicine, or contemporary medicine, not American, worldwide. I love contemporary medicine. I, I love it. 
Uh, it, it, is, it is a great blessing within our lives. Um, Kimberly had foot surgery on Wednesday. And I'm so glad that the anesthesiologist, when he walked in, didn't say to Kimberly, okay, before your surgery, here's a shot of whiskey and a stick to bite down on, I, you know, or a piece of leather. I'm glad he didn't say that. He gave her some awesome drugs, and she said some crazy stuff on the way home. I <laughs> wish I had been... Wish I had been taping it. My daughter said, Dad, why didn't you tape it? And I'm like, oh, I didn't think to, to tape it. I literally thought to myself I was going to try to convince her that there had been a zombie apocalypse while she was out. And uh, so if you've ever seen that, you've got to just Google zombie apocalypse with brothers did that to a daughter. But I digress. Now, with all that in mind, Egyptian medicine, as all medicine in the world, was terrible in 1400 B.C. Uh, here are some of the prescriptions that we find from antiquity. Infected splinter wound. This we find in this in papyrus uh, from that time uh, for the Egyptians. What would you do for an infected splinter wound? Application of an ointment mixture composed of the blood of worms mixed with the dung of a donkey. Hair loss. Here's what you do for hair loss. Application to the scalp of a solution composed of various fats from a horse, a crocodile, a cat, a snake, and a donkey's tooth crushed in honey. Now, I know it sounds crazy, but just in case, I tried it to see. You, you, you never know when these homegrown you know, remedies are, are going to do it. Um, uh, cures included cat's dung, hippopotamus dung, donkey's hoof, gazelle dung, snake skins, and the ever-popular fly dung. Many prescriptions had fly dung. Fly dung was kind of the aspirin of its time or the, or the antibiotics of its time. If you had a painful tumor, the prescription was fly dung mixed with sycamore juice. Crying of a child. You young parents are going to want to listen up on this one. Here's what they did for crying of a child. You would scrape fly dung from the wall, make it into a paste, strain it, and have your child drink it for four days. And literally, it says in the ancient documents, the crying will cease instantly. Now, you can make your own conclusions as to why uh, that might be. Most prescriptions included dung from animals and, and from humans. In your study outlines, you'll see a list from an Egyptian papyrus manuscript. Uh, lizard's blood, swine's teeth, putrid meat, stinking fat, moisture from pig's ears. Now, when you're at the L.A. County Fair, you know, later this year, take a Q-tip with you and swipe it through the pig's ears, pop it in your mouth, you will feel something later on after that. Um, milk, goose grease, donkey's hooves, animal fats from various sources, excreta from animals, including human beings, donkeys, antelopes, dogs, cats, and even flies. Now, Lisa Manike, this is classic understatement, Okay. In general, Coptic or Egyptian medicine is not held in very high esteem. Is not held in very high esteem. Boy, how's that for understatement? But until a hundred years ago, all medicine was not held in very high esteem. I said, Glenn, why, why are you going through all this? Acts seven verse twenty-two. Moses was educated in. You, you say the word with me out loud together. All the wisdom of the Egyptians. All the wisdom, which we would include, would include medical wisdom as well. Now, this is not just sources within the Bible. Extra-biblical sources outside the Bible say the same thing about Moses. Flavius Josephus, who's the great Jewish historian, in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, said the exact same thing, that Moses had been trained in the wisdom and all the wisdom 
of the Egyptians. Now, if this has all just been kind of mumble jumble and I've been jumping around a lot here, this will summarize it for you. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage from the book, The Signature of God by Grant Jeffrey. Here it is. Both the writer of the Torah and the millions of ancient Israelite slaves would have absorbed the medical knowledge and traditional treatments of the Egyptians during the centuries of Israel's captivity. However, a close examination of the first five books of the Bible written by Moses does not include a single reference to these deadly medical cures of the pagan Egyptian society in which Moses and the Israelites were raised. Rather, we discover in the pages of ancient scriptures the most advanced sanitation instructions and the most sophisticated medical knowledge that the world has ever known until the explosion of medical research in this century following World War I. Any intelligent reader must ask this question, where did Moses obtain his incredibly advanced medical knowledge? Obviously, he did not receive this accurate medical knowledge from the Egyptians or any other pagan culture of that time. This advanced and accurate knowledge reveals a profound understanding of germs, infectious transmission routes, human sanitation needs, and many other medical advances unknown outside the Bible until the last 35 centuries. After the last service, just a few minutes ago, I was out in the lobby, and, and uh, you know, it always makes me nervous. Pastors kind of brush up on something once a week, and then we move on to something different. So you're always uh, somewhat intimidated when they're actual experts, as there are many of I mean, all of you are experts in your field. Everyone here, you have an area where you're an expert in, and many times it happens to be something that I just happen to be talking on. And so um, a, a gentleman comes out and uh, meets me at the Connect Center, and he hands me his card, and he is, um, has all these degrees after his name, Masters of Public Health, MD, doctor. He's the public health officer uh, for Kaiser, for all of Kaiser. And he hands this to me. And I was like, oh, man, here it comes. And he goes, he goes that was fantastic. And I'm like, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'm so glad. He goes, my goodness. He goes, you know, there are countries in the world right now that aren't doing these things. He said, this is like just basic stuff. And he says, absolutely. He says, I never thought of it today, but just this stuff that you were sharing and reading about, if they just simply did this as representatives of you that you're giving, your missionaries are out there sharing this information right now. He said it would help you. Uh, an illustration I didn't have time for at the earlier service, but the River Thames during the pinnacle of British, the British Empire. British Empire was the pinnacle of the world in the 1800s. The River Thames smelled so bad, just so bad. They just put all their refuse right in it, running right through London. It was so bad that they used to take burlap saps and put all kinds of positive smelling things in them in the, in the windows of Parliament to, so that, because they couldn't do their work in Parliament because the smell of the river was so bad. And even in that period, uh, the, the most sophisticated culture in the world at that time still didn't know some of these basic things. So why did these beliefs that were surrounding them from this time period not creep into the pages of the Bible? And again, I want to do another disclaimer. Um, I in no way want to show disrespect for the Koran. Uh, in no way the Koran that was written by Muhammad. Uh, this is, what you find in the Koran is exactly what you would expect to find in a work written by a human being in 600 AD. It's exactly, as a matter of fact, it's what you might expect all the way up until like 1800 AD. And so I don't mean any disrespect. But in the Quran, Muhammad described, prescribed uh, one of his prescriptions for getting well when a person was sick is to drink camel urine mixed in milk. 
He also said that if a fly was in your cup, it was okay to drink it because one wing had the disease and the other wing had the antidote. And the Quran is just filled with these kind of things. And I don't mean any disrespect for the Quran. This is exactly what you would expect to find in a work written by a human in 600 AD. So the Bible is supernatural because of what is not in it. But it is also supernatural because of what is in it. I mean, reading these things that I'm about to share with you with the time that we have left would be like reading along in Egyptian hieroglyphics uh, from this time period in 1400 BC. And as you're reading along in Egyptian hieroglyphics, you come across a sports car. That, that's, that's what would be the quote. And, and this, is not, this is not an exaggeration because the car was invented right around the same time that these medical regulations were discovered. So I'm not doing exaggeration. This is literally... You know, maybe for the time of, 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 of Moses, it might be, you know, like a Model T Ford. But then as we've got more sophisticated regulations, it's like a sports car showing up in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Out of the 613 biblical commandments found in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 213 are detailed medical regulations. So with the time we have left, let's just look at a few examples. And if I skip over some scriptures, you can just read them uh, on your own. Uh, first of all, God's laws of hygiene and sanitation from 1400 B.C. Leviticus 6, verse 28. When something's contaminated, the clay pot the meat is cooked in must be broken because there would be germs in the cracks of it. So you couldn't reuse it. You couldn't scour it. You had to just break it. But if it is cooked in a bronze pot, then the pot is to be scoured and rinsed with water to be disinfected. Leviticus 11, verse 35, anything that one of their carcasses falls on becomes unclean, that is, of a dead animal or a dead person. An oven or cooking pot must be broken up. They are unclean, and you are to regard them uh, as unclean. Now, we know today that without refrigeration, uh, decaying meat becomes um, dangerous. Uh, we all know that when you're driving home after church, if you see a dead possum in the road, you don't pull over and say, hey, kids, we've got lunch, Okay. Unless you're from Virginia, then you do, you do that. But uh, you, you don't pull over. Uh, we all know that decaying meat is good for buzzards, but bad for human beings. Uh, Leviticus 7, verse 24. The fat of an animal found dead or torn by wild animals may be used for any other purpose, but you must not eat it. Now, how did they know this? Well, you, you'd be thinking, well, trial and error. You know, anybody can do that, trial and error, over time. Not necessarily, because nobody learned these things by trial and error until 1890, until, what is that, like 130 years ago. Uh, 1890 is when they finally discovered the concept of, of germs. Um, so for 3,300 years, nobody learned it by trial and error, which leads us to God's health plan to prevent infectious diseases from 1400 B.C. Nobody did it from trial and error. Uh, let me just read you the tragic story, really, of Dr. Ignaz uh, Semmelweis, who actually set the stage, you would say he kind of set the foundation for what was eventually discovered 25 years after his death in 1890. Ignaz Semmelweis, a brilliant Hungarian doctor in the mid-19th century, created a tremendous improvement in practical medical treatment and the control of infectious diseases. As a young doctor in Vienna, Austria, in 1845, Semmelweis was appalled by the staggering rate of death by infection of women who gave birth in hospitals. While most children were born at home, a number of women, usually the homeless or sick, gave birth in a hospital. 
the level of infectious childbed fever was horrendous, with between 15 and 30% of such mothers dying. Can you imagine being on the way? I've just seen some of you women here today that are expecting children, and, and what a joyful, wonderful thing that is, as I've seen you just walking in today, just uh, of what's going on all across the church. And, and can you imagine on the way to the hospital, your death rate was between 15 and 30%. This tragic situation was generally accepted and considered normal at that time. But Semmelweis was convinced that there must be a way to protect more of these women from fever. He began to study the conditions under which the women were giving birth. He noted that every morning, young interns examined the bodies of the mothers who had died and then, without washing their hands, went to the next ward where they would examine expectant mothers. Do you see a problem with that? They didn't. This was considered a normal medical practice in the mid-19th century because the existence of germs was not yet known. However, Semmelweis insisted that the doctors under his supervision follow his new orders to wash their hands in water with chlorinated lime prior to examining living patients. Immediately, the mortality rate from infection among the expectant mothers fell to less than 2%. Despite such dramatic improvement, the senior hospital staff despised Semmelweis's medical innovations and eventually fired him. Most of his medical colleagues rejected his new techniques and ridiculed his demands that they wash their hands. They could not believe infections could be caused by something that was invisible to the naked eye. Decades of rejection by his colleagues drove Semmelweis to a nervous breakdown. Tragically, due to an infection he received through a cut on his hand while performing an operation in 1865, he succumbed to the infectious disease he spent his life trying to alleviate. Uh, Germs were discovered 25 years after his death in 1890. But way before that, Moses wrote in Numbers chapter 19, this is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days. And every open container without a lid fastened on it will be unclean. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who's been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or grave will be unclean for seven days. For the unclean person, put some ashes from the burned purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. Pour fresh water over them. Even if you did wash your hands, you would use the same bowl as everyone else until the last 100 years. But here, 3,300 years ago, we told 3,400 years ago, make sure you do it with fresh water. Leviticus 15, verse 13, when a man is cleansed from his discharge, he is to count off seven days for a ceremonial cleansing. He must wash his clothes and bathe himself with fresh water, and he will be clean. How did Moses know to do this 3,400 years ago? Uh, God's health plan to prevent plague and leprosy. Uh, We come now to the greatest verse in all the Bible, Leviticus 13, verse 40. A man who has lost his hair and is bald is clean. (laughs) Brings tears to my eyes, such a beautiful verse. Uh, let me give you some examples of what we're talking about here, okay? First example, clean. 
Next example, unclean. <laughs> Next person, clean. Next one, unclean. Next one, clean. Next one, eh, kind of in between. I, uh, I'm not really sure on, on that one. Now, obviously, this verse is taken out of context. Um, this passage that we're looking at is about controlling skin diseases uh, like leprosy. Uh, skipping down to verse 46, as long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. You say, well, Glenn, that sounds kind of harsh. But you see, it was for their protection and the protection of their family. And when they got well, they could come back into community once again. Now, it's interesting, the Bible was particularly concerned during religious festivals because people could catch something from each other during a religious festival, then go home to their hometowns and their home villages and spread the disease. It's the same fear we have today of bioterrorism and airports and events like the Olympics. But uh, we know that today, but how did Moses know this? It wouldn't be discovered for another 3,300 years. The bubonic plague killed a third of the population of Europe. Can you imagine a plague killing 100 million Americans? And the greatest minds of that time had these reasons for the bubonic plague. Some said the planets were out of alignment. Some said people should avoid garlic. Others, the greatest minds of the time, said people should stop eating pepper. Do you know what eventually stopped the bubonic plague? Pastors in Vienna, Austria, started preaching from the book of Leviticus. And they would tell people about God's plan uh, for quarantine, and the bubonic plague was stopped in its tracks. Arturo Castiglione writes, the laws against leprosy in Leviticus 13 may be regarded as the first model of a sanitary legislation. Your mother was right. Please wash your hands. Now, now we know why we do that. Every five-year-old knows you, you wash your hands to prevent the spreading of germs. But before 1890, hardly anybody took a bath. Until the 1840s, it was considered to be dangerous to take a bath. Until 1900, most people took a bath less than once a year. King James, who authorized the King James translation of the Bible, never took a bath his entire life. But Israel knew to do it in 1400 B.C. Other things you can read these passages on your own. Incineration of animal waste to prevent disease in Leviticus 4, verses 11 and 12. The red heifer, heifer sacrifice in Numbers uh, chapter 19. Now, uh, the red heifer sacrifices had a spiritual significance behind it. Uh, it was a picture of Christ. And it's interesting, it was the only sacrifice done outside of the camp just like Jesus was crucified and sacrificed outside of the city of Jerusalem. One little additional side note is in the Talmud, they said that the only part of the Bible to that point written, that Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, the only part he couldn't understand was the red heifer sacrifice. And, and the reason he couldn't understand it, we believe now, is because it spoke of Christ. Because Jesus hadn't come yet. Um, but it was also, despite the spiritual, in addition to the spiritual significant, the red heifer sacrifice, if you look at the ingredients, was a very effective antiseptic and antibacterial agent. In Numbers 31, you have sanitizing metals by passing them through the fire. In Leviticus 17.11, you have the knowledge that life is, is, is in the blood in Leviticus 17, verse 11. And then you have the amazing command 
uh, concerning uh, circumcision. Uh, This one is 4,000 years old, given to Abraham. In Genesis 17, verse 12, For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Why on the eighth day? Why not the seventh day? Why not the ninth day? Why not on your 13th birthday, like some cultures? And all the men are just like, oh, I'm thankful I wasn't born in that culture. 13th birthday. Why why the eighth day? Well, researchers have recently found that there are two different blood clotting and healing factors in the the body. Vitamin K and prothromborin. There is one day when the two of these peak in your body at 110% of normal. And it's on the eighth day. Basic sanitation. We're going to end this now with uh, just one more enjoyable one for any junior hires that have sat through this. You're probably in your program with JT, Pastor JT right now. But just in case there are any junior hires or people that are basically like junior hires uh, who have sat through this message, um, uh, let me just give you one fun one about basic sanitation at the end. Deuteronomy 23, designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with, and when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. Now here's the best part. The next verse says, for I, the Lord your God, walketh through the camp. I, I, was, I found that funny. I'm sorry. I just, never, never mind. But, but you know that this verse right here, that, that guy, the, the head of public health for, for Kaiser, okay, public health officer, he told me just this verse right here. He said, is not practiced in many parts of the world today. And if it was to be practiced, it would eradicate much of the disease. Uh, here's, the, here's the main point from all this. Uh, Grant Jeffrey writes, How could Moses have written these incredibly accurate and advanced medical instructions unless God inspired him? Here's the big idea from this teaching. If Israel could trust God to keep them healthy on the journey from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land, we can trust God to keep us safe on our journey all the way to heaven. We can trust him when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In those areas where it's hard to obey God, I mean, can, can you imagine what the Israelite children were saying about some of these regulations? Can you imagine? Why do I have to do them? None of my Philistine friends have to do them. And the parents would say, well, if the Philistines all jumped off a roof, would you jump off a roof too, you know? Uh, you know, they, they would just be like, what's up with this? And today, there are many parts of God's word that we're like, why do we have to obey that? Why do we have to believe that? And, and it's all so hard, and, 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 and yet they wouldn't know during their lifetimes. Only when they got to heaven would they understand. And there are areas of our obedience where we may not understand until we get to heaven. But he's given us enough evidence uh, of what we can understand to trust him in the areas of our life that we do not yet understand. As the praise band comes back up for closing worship, 
Let's just go before the Lord in prayer. And if you've never opened up your heart to follow Jesus, maybe, maybe you're not there yet. You say, Glenn, thanks for some possible additional evidence. Uh, I'll have to continue my search, but could you pray this prayer? Why don't you pray this prayer with me? Lord, I'm open. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be made willing. I'm, I'm open to hear more evidence that you want to say to me on these matters. Lord, I have an open heart. And there's a verse in the Bible that God says, if you search for me with all your heart, if you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. So just have an open mind and open heart and say, God, I'm willing to keep pursuing you. There seems to be enough evidence here that's piqued my curiosity. Or maybe you're watching online, or you're listening by podcast, or you're here today. And you say, Glenn, I'm ready. I'm ready. Between Sean McDowell last Sunday and this, this Sunday, and just everything else that's been happening in my life, I'm ready. Would you pray silently with me as I pray out loud? Dear God, I don't understand everything about Jesus and this Christian faith and about life, but I understand enough to take Pascal's wager and to bet my life on it. From this day forward, I open my heart. Will you forgive me of my wrongdoing, my sins? And from this day forward, I will follow you because I believe, not without any doubt, but beyond a reasonable doubt, that I am who you say I am. And I believe beyond a reasonable doubt that this is real. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, amen. Let's stand up. Let's worship for a few more minutes.